Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. The words you just heard in that video are from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet, which basically just means that Isaiah spoke for God. So if God had a message to give to the world, to give to the people, he would do it through his prophets. Isaiah was one of the most famous ones. And Isaiah spoke for God on a number of topics, but I think most notably he spoke for God about the coming Messiah, this Savior that would save the whole world. In fact, when Jesus comes to earth and he announces that he is that Savior, he actually quotes from Isaiah to do so. And then when he finishes talking about that quote, that prediction from Isaiah, he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing announcing himself as Messiah, as King, as Savior. Now, this prediction that we just heard in our video comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And here's what it says again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the kingdom will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. There are a lot of characteristics or attributes of Jesus talked about in this short passage, but only one is mentioned twice, peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and then Isaiah says there will be no end to the peace he brings. And if you remember when the angels announced his birth, when he was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, they, say, they sang this song about the peace that Jesus was ushering in. They say, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. The Prince of Peace was bringing peace to earth and this peace would never end. It's, it's a key, important theme, a part of the mission of Jesus. Now this all sounds pretty amazing, but there's just one problem. When we study the life of Jesus, we quickly see that it wasn't all that peaceful. From the moment he was born, Jesus rocked the boat. He pushed on the status quo. He got into arguments with religious leaders. Let me explain what I mean. If we jump back a couple of verses, we see where it all starts. We see why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born. Luke 2, starting in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary. So there was this big census that was taking place. He went there to register with Mary. And then it says, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So did you catch that? They were engaged, not married, when Jesus was born. That was a huge deal in the first century Jewish culture. Jesus' very life, his birth, Mary's pregnancy was a scandal. From day one, it wasn't that peaceful. 
Not long after he was born, Jesus and his parents had to flee their home country and seek refuge in Egypt because King Herod, who ruled at the time, decided to murder every male child under two years old. Here's what it says, Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. This scandalized refugee child grew up to be quite the pot-stirring, confrontational adult. This is just who he was. When he started his public ministry around 30 years old, he was constantly derided by religious and political leaders for, for saying the wrong things, for doing the wrong things, for hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. He broke religious rules to heal the sick and feed the hungry on the Sabbath. He broke societal rules to spend time with the marginalized, to party with the people who everybody said had no purpose. He broke political rules when he announced himself as Lord and King. This Prince of Peace coming with the promise to bring peace on earth that will never end sure seems to be bad at keeping the peace, doesn't he? Maybe that's because our understanding of peace differs significantly from the biblical definition of peace. We're in this series on Advent we're focusing in on these four themes that are found throughout the Bible. Hope, joy, today we're doing peace. Tomorrow at Christmas Eve, we're talking about love. And just like last week, we're going to take a look at a video from the Bible Project that outlines how this theme of peace is woven throughout Scripture. So if you haven't been here last week or the week before as we've watched one of these videos, they're about four minutes long and they're packed with amazing information that can really help us understand what biblical peace is all about. So here you go. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals were missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. 
And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Ereme. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Ereme. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. So he says, in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also refers to something better in its place. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. Shalom is one of my favorite words in all of the Bible. It paints such a fuller picture of peace than our English language allows. In Hebrew, it means abundant wholeness in everything and between everything. So not just personal wholeness, but wholeness in every relationship, wholeness in every interaction. That's what shalom is. From the very beginning, God's intent for his creation is shalom. That becomes obvious when we see God look out at the world that he created and he said, it is very good. In Eden, we see the fruits of shalom, everything living and working together in perfect harmony. This was God's plan all along, shalom in us, shalom through us. Genesis scholar Gordon Wenham puts it plainly. He says, peace between all God's creatures and the divine presence on earth is the essence of the divine scheme. This is the plan, peace on earth, in us and through us. But many of you know the story, and if you do, you know that that peace didn't last very long. Adam and Eve chose not to trust God, regardless to the cost for themselves or anything else. They turn their backs on God, and they choose to go their own way. Sin enters into the world, and God's shalom-filled creation breaks. In her book, The Very Good Gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper describes it like this. She says, Genesis 3 paints the scenario that is the hinge point of history. Humanity grasps at its own peace at the expense of the peace of all. The relationships that were declared very good in the beginning are decimated. Here lies the wreckage of that fateful moment of original sin. 
The moment when humanity chose not to trust God's way to peace. And you and I, we live in the wreckage of that choice and of our choices not to trust God each and every day to try to pursue peace in our own way, not in the way that he outlines. And God could have very easily and justifiably said, fine, have it your way, do your thing. I'm gonna turn my backs on you guys and just let you have it. But he didn't, and thank God he doesn't, because you see, the very moment that humanity destroyed Shalom, God started rebuilding it again. In the midst of us turning our backs on him, God set in motion his plan to leave the perfection of heaven, to come to the brokenness of earth and begin restoring that broken shalom. This is God's great plan, his mission of restoration. When we understand the true biblical definition of peace, it's easy to see Jesus as this prince of shalom, not keeping the status quo, not never rocking the boat, but restoring everything that's broken. He spends his whole life doing that. His whole work to restore people and places that are messed up. That's why he spends time with the people he spends time with. That's why he does the things he does and says the things he says. He's on this mission of restoring shalom. And listen, he calls us to do the very same thing. This was never more apparent than in his famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to actually kind of spend the rest of our time together in Matthew 5 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open it. If you've got your phone, you want to go to Matthew 5, or the verses will also be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. Now, we're going to start back at verse 1, because I want you to see this entire command to be peacemakers in context. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount because literally the crowd was so big that Jesus had to go to a mountainside and sit so that everyone could see him and everyone could hear him when he talked. And I love that there's, there's no preamble, there's no beating around the bush with Jesus. He just jumps right in to his usual countercultural message. In a culture obsessed with money, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In a culture obsessed with dominance and toughness, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In a culture that loved to go through these lavish, week-long parties with all the best food and all the best wine, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In a culture where the best kings and generals showed no mercy to their adversaries, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then finally, in this honor and shame-based culture that they lived in, content with never rocking the boat, content with keeping the status quo, Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but it's, it's really incredible. Of all the characteristics Jesus calls his followers to in Matthew 5, peacemaker is the only one listed with an identity instead of with a reward. You see what I'm saying? So instead of being blessed or being comforted or being shown mercy, like it says if you do the other things, it says for peacemakers, they will be called children of God. So if you show mercy to people, you, you will be shown mercy to. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. All of these come with these rewards, but when it says peacemakers, it says you will be not rewarded, but called children of God. It's an identity statement. Here's what that means. We are never more aligned with God than when we are pursuing peace. We are never more aligned with God and his great mission of restoration than we are pursuing peace. We are his children. That's when he looks down at us and he says, a boy, a girl, you're doing what I did. You're letting me work through you to accomplish restoration of shalom. Like we just said, this is God's whole plan. He is on this mission of restoring the shalom that was broken back in Eden, and he has called us to be a part of it. This is what Tim Mackey said when he was talking in that Bible Project video we watched just a few minutes ago. He said, to bring shalom literally means to restore. When it's used as a verb, that's what it means. It means to restore. It's God's mission, and it's our mission. We are bringers of shalom. We are peacemakers. But here's the thing, y'all. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to just know we're called to bring shalom. We have to start understanding how to do that, how to be a peacemaker. To help us understand what it means to bring shalom into our lives and into our world, I want to, for a second, contrast peacemaking and peacekeeping. Okay? So hang with me. The difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. You see, peacemaker and a peacekeeper are not the same thing. Peacekeepers strive to placate everyone. Peacemakers strive to bring justice for everyone. Peacekeepers try not to rock the boat. Peacemakers aren't afraid to rock the boat if it means helping someone. Peacekeepers maintain the status quo. Peacemakers are change agents in pursuit of fixing the brokenness in our world. Let me give you some examples. Proponents of Jim Crow were called peacekeepers. They felt that separate water fountains in schools and restaurants for people of color was a good way to compromise, right, between the the former slave owners and the newly freed black people. They thought, this will be fine, this will keep the peace. This is a good system. But people like Martin Luther King Jr. and other reformers, they knew that wasn't shalom. They knew that wasn't truly restoration. You see, Dr. King was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. He fought for peace, and he did it with nonviolence and with love. But he wasn't afraid of a confrontation. Along those same lines, those who opposed women's suffrage were called peacekeepers. No reason to rock the boat. Right? Ladies are getting getting more and more rights. But but the right to vote, that seems like a little much. Right? We don't need to go quite that far. Why push it? Susan B. Anthony didn't agree. She was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. 
She protested. She voted illegally. She even went to jail pursuing shalom. Last example, the religious leaders of the first century in Jesus' time, they were peacekeepers. They kept people in constant fear of God's anger by saying that he only loved them if they kept all the rules, if they stayed straight in line, if they never rocked the boat, then he would be pleased with them. This, this, they thought this would keep everyone in line. But God didn't like being misrepresented by the very ones who claimed to be his followers. So he left heaven. He came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to let everyone know once and for all that God's love was freely available to anyone and everyone who wanted to partake of it. Jesus was a peacemaker. He confronted the religious leaders, even flipping over their tables in the temple courts one time. He exposed them as frauds. And then in the most incredible peacemaking act in all of history, he dies for the sins of the world. And hear me, he doesn't just die for the ones that accepted his love the first time. He died for the guys, the, the ones he flipped the tables over. He died for the religious leaders too. He died for all of them. But then three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death and exposing the broken, peacekeeping ways of our society. He overcame death with life, and now he offers that life to everyone through his spirit. And listen, because this is the huge key in all of this. If you are a Christian, if you have embraced the love of Jesus, then he, by his spirit, lives within you. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And get this, if you will allow him to, Jesus will work through you the same way he worked when he was here on earth. Through Jesus, we won't be peacekeepers. We will be peacemakers. And peacemakers strive for shalom. This has been true since the very opening pages of God's story in Scripture. Striving for shalom through restoration is the definition of biblical peace. Like Tim Mackey said in our video, peace takes a lot of work. Because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness. Whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. This is what God does. This is who he is. This is what he wants to do through me and through you. You see, we are never more aligned with God than when we are actively pursuing shalom. That's when he looks down at us and he says, those are my kids. You see that? Well, I came, that's what I did, and they're doing the same thing. Those are my children. So as we finish up this morning, here's the question we are compelled to answer. Are we peacekeepers or are we peacemakers? Are we peacekeepers or peacemakers? This question can be asked and answered in many areas of our lives, but I, I want to focus in on one in particular. Because you see, during the holidays, over the next couple of weeks, most of us will spend time with family and friends, right? People that we love. Sometimes we don't like them all that much, but people that we love, you know? And this is usually a time when we are tempted 
to be peacekeepers, right? We're tempted to not rock the boat. We're tempted to just kind of let everything go and not worry about it and just put our head down, get through the holidays, <laughs> turn the calendar, and let's get on with it, you know? That's what we're tempted to do. But instead, why don't we be peacemakers this year? Here's what I'm thinking. If there's a person in your family who, who doesn't usually come around for the holidays, someone that most people have written off, you know, that, they, that you guys don't really speak to anymore, don't be a peacekeeper and just ignore them like every other year. Be a peacemaker. Reach out to them. Invite them to come over. Invite them to be a part. And if you guys aren't ready for that or maybe your family's not ready for that, invite them to spend time with just you. Take them out for a meal. Tell them that they're loved. Tell them that no matter what has happened, they're a part of the family. Pursue that peace, that restoration. Don't just peace keep. Peace make. If someone says something sexist or bigoted or racist at your family get-together or friend get-together, don't just be a peacekeeper. Laugh it off, you know? Change the subject. Be a peacemaker. Ask them a question. Why, why do you think that? Where'd that come from? Tell them why it's painful for you to hear something like that. Why it's painful for people that you love when people say things like that. If you're with a loved one that you know has a problem, maybe with addiction, alcohol or drugs, something like that, don't look the other way this holiday season just to keep the peace. Be a peacemaker. Gently confront them in love. Let them know you care about them way too much to see them continue hurting themselves and hurting other people. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not giving you license to just be a jerk to people, okay? That's not what I'm doing. <laughs> Peacemaking is about loving someone or something so much that you can't bear to watch it wallow in brokenness any longer. Okay, do you hear me? That's the difference. It's not just license to be a jerk. It's not license to say whatever you want. Peacemaking, shalom, pursuing is about loving someone so much that you cannot bear to watch it stay broken any longer. And that love through Jesus compels you to peacemake, not peace keep. Don't be angry, don't be combative. Pursue shalom with kindness and with compassion, but also with bravery. Have some courage and know that the one who came to make peace for the world is in you wanting to make peace with the people and the world around you. Don't settle for peacekeeping this holiday season. Do some peacemaking. Be who you were made to be as a follower of Jesus. Be a peacemaker. It's God's mission and it's our mission. Remember, we are never more aligned with God than when we are pursuing shalom. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for I will see them and they will be called children of God. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the way that, um, just that your peace looks so different from our peace. 
Thank you that you didn't come and just keep peace, God, that you didn't just rock the boat, that you didn't keep the status quo, but you came to fix what was broken. You came to bring justice and wholeness where there was brokenness. Thank you for doing that in our world. Thank you for doing it in our lives. I pray that our lives, especially this holiday season, would be defined, be defined by peacemaking, not by peacekeeping. You would give us courage and compassion and kindness as we, led by your spirit, attempt to bring shalom into places that truly, truly need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.